This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. How are you? How are you? I wonder if you're anything like me, when you have this question posed to you, you have a go-to response. Mine is typically, I'm fine, thank you, how are you? Even this morning, I had several people here at church say, hey, how are you? And I said, I'm fine, thanks, how are you? Sometimes we ask that question and we don't really expect a true response. What if you ask that question of someone here at church and they responded by saying, well, I just got through fighting with my spouse, my children are driving me crazy, and if the sermon goes longer than 30 minutes, I'm walking out. No, we tend to expect an answer like, I'm fine, thank you, how are you? And because we're in Texas, sometimes we may even get a response like, I'm doing fine, I'm blessed, God bless you. And it may even be genuine, that person may really be doing fine, that person really may feel blessed, but we tend to engage at such a superficial level with that question and that answer that we seem to just roll out of our mouths and in one ear and out the other. We've gotten so accustomed to giving pat answers to that question Uh, that we even make fun of those on social media who are hashtag blessed. But Christian, shouldn't we take more seriously the question of ourselves and others, how are you? When I was preparing the sermon, I was reminded uh, of a situation that occurred about 10 years ago. 10 years ago this summer, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was clerking for a law firm it was after my first year of law school, so I'm, in, you know, I'm, a, I'm a baby lawyer, not even a baby lawyer, I'm a, I'm a baby 1L. Uh, I'm in D.C. at this firm, and I'm really geeked up about it. It was, it, on all accounts, it was a pretty miserable experience, okay? Um, the way that I got through that summer is that I had a very set routine. I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get ready, I'd go to work, I'd suffer through the day, I'd get through the day, I'd come home, I'd change out of my suit into some comfortable clothes, I'd grab my Bible, I'd grab J.I. Packers knowing God, and I would head to the closest Starbucks where I'd sit and I'd read and I'd pray and I'd try to get through to the next day. And every evening when I walked into that Starbucks, I can still see this man's face. It was a barista Uh, who was clearly from uh, African descent. He had a very thick African accent. And I'd walk in, and without thinking about it, I would just do my order and uh, and, go on about my my time. Well, a few times after I started coming in pretty consistently, this man would look at me and he'd say, how are you? And not wanting to give the true answer, which was I was miserable and angry and I really didn't like this thing I was doing all day. Uh, Instead of doing that, I'd say, I'm fine, thank you. And then I'd say, how are you? And he would look at me, very sincerely, he would say, I am blessed and highly favored. And I'd look at him, the first time he did this to me, I thought, well, that's very weird, that's strange. Here I am, Bible in hand, knowing God in hand, and this man is looking at me and saying, I am blessed and highly favored. And I looked at him and thought, you are weird why are you saying that to me? That's not, I, I don't care. But it clearly stuck with me. And in my self-centeredness, in my cynicism, in my faithlessness, that barista's response day in 
and day out, even 10 years later, still convicts me. Because according to the Apostle Paul here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, every Christian is blessed and highly favored of God. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to live like it. Before we jump into the text this morning, let's pray and let's ask God to bless us during this time. Let's pray. Father, as we open the Bible, make this book live to us, O Lord, and show us wondrous things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you would look to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3, as I read the text. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." We will consider these verses this morning under four headings, and they're printed in your bulletin. Four headings. First, we'll consider the Blessed Trinity. The Blessed Trinity. We see in these verses that the people of God are blessed because the God of the people is the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Second, we'll consider that we are blessed by the Father. We're blessed by the Father. These verses teach us that the love of God, the Father, works all things according to the counsel of his will as he predestines and elects a people to be holy and blameless to the praise of his glory and grace. Third, we'll consider that we are blessed in the Son. We're blessed in the Son. In Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we have adoption into God's family, redemption from our sin, and a revelation and a knowledge of God, and we're made co-heirs with Christ. And lastly, we will consider that we are blessed through the Holy Spirit. We are blessed through the Holy Spirit. We will see in these verses that the Father arranges our redemption. The Father arranges our redemption. The Son accomplishes our redemption. And the Holy Spirit applies our redemption. Well, the main point of this entire sermon can be summed up like this. The blessed Trinity works in accord to bless God's people by the will of God the Father in God the Son, and through God the Holy Spirit. The blessed Trinity works in accord to bless God's people by the will of God the Father, in God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. 
So now let us turn and consider the Blessed Trinity. In the original Greek, these 12 verses, verse 13 through 14, is a single, complex sentence that gives the sense that, as John Stott put it, Paul's speech pours out of his mouth in a continuous cascade of praise. He neither stops for breath nor punctuates his words with full stops. It is a paean of praise, a doxology to God who, as he says in verse 3, is blessed. God is blessed. In verse 3, we see all three persons of this blessed Godhead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. The first thing that Paul does in this doxology is to confess the blessedness of the Trinitarian God. The origin of the blessing is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the means of our blessing? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And what is the nature of our blessedness? It is our spiritual blessings, or, or it could be translated, blessings of the Spirit. Blessedness of the Spirit. So that's what our spiritual blessing is. It's, it's the Father who's blessed. It's the means of our blessing, which is Jesus Christ. And it's the fact that our blessing is a spiritual blessing from the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the Trinity is not some abstract doctrine for theological eggheads. The Trinity is the essence of the nature of God in whom we live and move and have our being, Acts 17. And the Trinity is the blessed communion of the Father with the Son in the Spirit. And that blessed Trinity and the blessed communion leads to divine action to include us in the blessedness of the triune life. Our current and eternal joy, brothers and sisters, and our blessedness is completely dependent on the triunity of God. God acts out of his blessed triunity to make us blessed in him. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given to us by the Father if we are in the Son. Every blessing of the Holy Spirit has been given to us by the Father if we are in the Son. No spiritual blessing. No spiritual blessing, beloved, has been withheld from you. And so we can sing, as we will in just a short moment, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. This is why Paul breaks forth in this breathless doxological praise in the beginning of this letter to the Ephesians is because he is recounting for us the divine blessedness in action. And that divine blessedness in action begins with God the Father. With God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here Paul introduces us to the eternal, mysterious purpose of God the Father in the blessing of election and predestination. In verse 4, we are told that God the Father chose us. He chose His people in Christ before the foundation of the world. Two or three times, depending on how you count, we're told that God the Father predestined us for salvation. And three times in these 12 verses, we are told that God the Father works all things according to the counsel of His will. So what are we to make of these statements by Paul about election and predestination? What are we to make of these truths that God the Father predestines, elects, works all things according to the counsel of his will. How, how do we square such teaching with man's responsibility? 
Well, many have speculated and made an attempt to reconcile these seemingly competing realities. But we can confidently say there are at least three truths taught here in this text about, these, about this doctrine. First, the doctrine of election and predestination is a divine revelation. It's a divine revelation. It is not human speculation. It is clearly taught right here in this text The Father chose us, he elected us before the foundation of the world, verse 4. He predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will, verse 5. He makes known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, verse 9. He has a plan for the fullness of time, verse 10. He predestined us for an inheritance and works all things according to the counsel of his will, verse 11. And that is just in these 12 verses. Not to say of the overwhelming evidence and witness of the rest of Scripture that reveals to us that God is, in fact, God. And that He is free to do as He will. And He is free to sovereignly direct all things according to the counsel of His supreme will. And yes, the Scripture also testifies to the reality that man is responsible for the choices that he makes. And the decisions that he makes according to the counsel of His will. We see that in verse 12. You hoped in Christ. You, the Ephesians, hoped in Christ. Verse 13, you heard, you believed. The Scripture holds both truths in tension. God sovereignly elects, God sovereignly predestines, and humanity is responsible for the decisions that we make. We see this reality perhaps most clearly at Pentecost and in the Pentecost sermon that was preached by the Apostle Peter in Acts 2, starting in verse 22, the Apostle Peter stands up and he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you see that even in the greatest tragedy, the greatest tragedy in all of history, the death of God the Son, there is a divine plan and there is human responsibility. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine pushes us to the outer limits of what we can understand of God and His ways. It is not an easy doctrine, but it is a true doctrine. And it's always important to remember what we know of God and what we know of ourselves. We know that God is holy, that God is wise. We know that God is love. And we know ourselves by God's grace to be sinful. That we, have cho- that we have freely chosen by the counsel of our own wills to disobey God and disobey His commands. God's purposes may be mysterious and hidden to us, but God has so graciously revealed to us the truth that He alone is holy, that He is most wise, and that He loves perfectly. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us not grumble and complain against God's mysterious yet holy and wise and most loving providence. But let us entrust ourselves to him who is perfectly wise, who is perfectly loving, and who works all things according to the counsel of his will. 
For if He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Second, the doctrine of election and predestination is a motivation for holiness rather than an excuse for sin. It's a motivation for holiness rather than an excuse for sin. Did you notice in these verses the what of our election? The Father chose us in Christ. Great. What did He choose us for? To be holy and blameless before Him. He elected us to be holy and blameless before Him. God's elect are positionally holy now. We're positionally holy now in Christ. And we are made progressively holier throughout our lives until that day when we will be perfectly holy with Christ in glory. We are positionally holy. We are progressively holier. And on that day, we will be perfectly holy with Christ in glory. If anyone says that election and predestination serve as an excuse for sinfulness, brothers and sisters, they do not understand the eternal purposes of God nor do they grasp the work and power of God that is even now at work in His people. God's purpose in election and predestination is our holiness. Brothers and sisters, God has predestined you to be holy. So what great confidence then we have to put to death the sin which so easily entangles us. What assurance that through many dangers and toils and snares we have already come. Twas grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. This doctrine is divine revelation, not human speculation. It, is, it encourages our holiness rather than our sinfulness. And third, the doctrine of election and predestination encourages humility in God's people. Humility in God's people rather than pride. Election, predestination, it challenges our pride. If you bristle at this doctrine this morning, I wonder if it's not your pride challenging God's freedom and God's authority. This doctrine encourages humility in God's people because it teaches us that God alone is the source of our salvation. God alone is the source of our salvation. It is He who made us, It is He who saves us and that of His own free grace. Brothers and sisters, a proud Christian is an oxymoron. There is no such thing. Brothers and sisters, we of all people should be humble. We should be reminded that God's love for us is of no merit in ourselves. We are like Israel in Deuteronomy 7 where God explained to them it was of no merit in them, but that God's love for His people was because He loves His people. He chose them because He chose them. He loves them because He loves them. God loves you, Christian, because He loves you. This should encourage humility in us, knowing that it is God's free will that has chosen us to be the object of His affection. Well, we must not attempt to speak any further than Scripture speaks of this matter and so dispel any mystery in election and predestination. It is surely a mysterious doctrine. But rather, we must humbly submit ourselves to the divine revelation of this great and comforting mystery that God the Father, by His own free will, acting in love, set His grace and mercy upon us in eternity so that we might be holy and blameless, so that we might be blessed in the Son. 
God the Father not only predestines the ends of our election, holy, to be holy and blameless, but he also provides the means of our salvation, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the object of the Father's great love, and it is only in Christ that we find our blessing from God. And what is that blessing that we have by the Father and in the Son? It is redemption, it is adoption, and it is revelation. It is redemption, adoption, and revelation. In Jesus Christ, we receive our most fundamental blessing, the redemption from our sin. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, in Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Redemption here means deliverance by payment of a price. Deliverance by payment of a price. And it's tied closely to forgiveness of a debt. You see that there in the text. The need for deliverance exists because God is a just judge. And we have all broken God's commands. We have all failed to live up to God's glory. Like the Israelites of old, our disobedience has led us into slavery. Sin is our master. Death is our reward. And if we are ever to receive blessing from God, we must be redeemed. Friends, this is your most fundamental need. Redemption from your sin. And the payment of redemption cannot be made by you. But we, by faith, can confess, as we have just sung, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should send His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Our election was in eternity, but brothers and sisters in Christ, our redemption was accomplished in time and space through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sent forth His Son at just the right time to live the life we could never live, to die the death that we deserve, and to rise again, vindicating Him and proving to all that Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection is acceptable in God's sight. It is the price of our redemption. And we take hold of that redemption by trusting in the riches of God's grace in the sinless blood of Jesus Christ shed for you. And notice, beloved, that God's grace is given to you according to His riches. Not out of His riches, but according to His riches. Think for a moment about a wealthy man, a man who has more money than he needs, who might give a small gift out of his riches. But if he were to give a gift according to the abundance of his riches, then that gift might be much larger. Beloved, God's grace is abundant. And so he gives according to that abundance. If he gave out of his abundance, then perhaps he would only give you enough grace for this moment or that moment and reserve some for later. But brothers and sisters know he gives according to his riches and therefore he lavishes us with his abundant grace through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as that old hymn reads, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes our glorious King, all his redeemed home to bring. Then anew his song will sing, hallelujah, 
What a Savior. The most fundamental blessing is the redemption from our sins, but in Jesus Christ we also received our highest blessing. Our highest blessing. And that is adoption into God's family. Adoption into God's family. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. Incidentally, beloved, notice that election and predestination is purposeful. It's purposeful with an eye toward adoption. J.I. Packer says that our adoption in Christ is the highest privilege of the gospel. And Packer continues in his book, Knowing God, Adoption is a family idea, conceived in love and viewing God as Father. In adoption, God takes us into His family and fellowship. He establishes us as His children and heirs. Closeness, affection, generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing. To be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater still. Let us consider what it means to be adopted in Christ, to have God as our Father. Let us dwell on the reality of what it means for us to have Jesus as our elder brother. It means that God intimately cares for you, Christian. He intimately cares for you. What father, when his child asks for bread, will give him a stone? So it is with your heavenly father. The psalmist reminds us that when we are in need, the father pities his children. The Proverbs tell us that when we need refuge, God protects us. So we can cast our cares on our father who is in heaven because he is strong. He is good and he cares for us. And brothers and sisters, because the Father cares for us, that means that sometimes He disciplines us. As the writer to the Hebrews reminds us, for the Lord disciplines those He loves and He chastises every son that He receives. But beloved, know this. God does not discipline in wrath. Rather, we are chastened by Him as by a loving Father. God's discipline is always a mercy to us. Beloved, if you feel as if God has cast you off, as if He has turned His face away, hold fast to the promise of Lamentations 3.31 that while severe mercies may come into your life, the Lord will not cast you away forever. But rather, as the Lord Jesus reminds us, I will never leave you or forsake you. If in adoption we have God as our Father... Then we also have the church as our family. Do you notice that Paul says that our blessing of adoption comes in the beloved? Verse 6. In one sense, Paul is only restating what he had previously said earlier uh, in this letter when he, he mentions that the Father adopted us in Christ. Christ is the beloved of God. But Christ sits as head atop of a body, the church. And so in this age... Our most basic relationship is to God in Christ. But our second most important relationship is to Christ in his people, is to Christ in his body, is to Christ's church. We are blessed in the beloved, in the church of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly those who are members of this congregation, we are God's family. 
We have one family, and we have one father, and we have one elder brother, and we have one spirit of adoption. We are to do all that we can, beloved, therefore, to foster unity and love in this family, seeking its good and striving for its health. We lay our lives down for the saints because that is what the Lord Jesus did for us. In Jesus Christ, we have redemption from our sin. We are adopted into God's family. And the character and purpose of God is revealed to us. The character and purpose of God is revealed to us. Verses 8 through 10 tell us that the Father's plan is for all things to be united under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It was the purpose of God from eternity to send forth His Son to be the means of our redemption, to be the elder brother of our adoption, and to reclaim what was lost in the fall of Adam. So if we want to know what the Father is like, we look to the Son. If we want to know the wisdom of God, we look to the Son. If we want to know the end of God's plan, we look to the Son. In Him, the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. And He has accomplished all that the Father intended and will come again in glory to make all things new. The Lord Jesus is the reason we can rest in the providence of God, in the predestined plan of God, even in the midst of the hardest of circumstances. Because we know that in Christ, we have redemption. We know that in Christ, we have a family. We know that in Christ, we know the good promises of God are yes and amen. And so we can say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Bless us. The blessed Trinity blesses His people by the Father, in the Son, and through the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit of God who applies God's blessings to His people. And so the Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way. Heidelberg Catechism says this, The Holy Spirit has been given to me personally, so that by true faith, He, the Holy Spirit, makes me share in Christ and all His blessings. He comforts me, and He remains with me forever. And so Paul here describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in three ways. He says that the Holy Spirit is promised. He says the Holy Spirit is a seal. And he says the Holy Spirit is a guarantee. He is promised, He's a seal, and He is our guarantee. In verse 13, we read of the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that has, as with the Father and the Son, been active in the world from the creation. And of course, the Spirit of God was active in and among God's people of old. But the Spirit's ministry was promised anew, promised afresh by the Old Testament prophets. So we read in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27, the Lord says through Ezekiel, He says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will put the new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. The Lord through the prophet Joel in Joel 2.28 says, The Lord will pour out His Spirit. And the Lord speaks and says, It shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out My Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men dream dreams and your young men see visions. The Lord through the prophets of old promised today when the Spirit's ministry to His people would be a ministry in His people. And the Lord Jesus Himself also promised the active ministry of the Spirit in the people of God in John 14, 15, and 16, and in Luke 24. And the promised Holy Spirit came 
At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell on God's people in fulfillment of the promise and so empowered the people of God and still empowers the people of God to speak the Word of God in different tongues so that the blessing of God would come to all kinds of people, both Jew and Gentile. And this promised Holy Spirit indwells everyone who repents and believes in the Lord Jesus, placing a seal on your soul. We see this clearly in verse 13. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, and when you believed the gospel of your salvation, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So what does it mean for the Spirit to be a seal for the Christian? Well, in in one sense, it certainly means that the Spirit keeps you The Spirit seals you, protecting you from any eternal and spiritual harm, ultimately protecting you from falling off into the eternal grip of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But here, the sense uh, in in this text is that the Holy Spirit is a seal as a mark of ownership, a mark of authenticity on the believer's soul. Whereas a rancher might brand his cattle to mark his ownership, God, through His Spirit, brands the heart of a Christian to mark them as His own. And the promised Holy Spirit does not only mark the Christian as His own, but it also gives Him a foretaste of life that is to come. The Holy Spirit, we read in verse 14, is the guarantee, literally the down payment of our inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ until we acquire full possession of it. Since we are adopted into God's family, we are co-heirs. We have an inheritance with Christ, our elder brother. And the Holy Spirit gives us a down payment so that we might have a taste of what that is in the life to come. So what is our inheritance? Our inheritance is the fullness of all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. It's the fullness of all the blessings that we have in Jesus Christ. We have already been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been set free from the penalty of sin. And through the guarantee of the Holy Spirit, we are being set free from the power of sin. And will one day be set free from the presence of sin. In our redemption, we are freed from the penalty of sin. We are being set free from the power of sin. And we will one day be set free from the presence of sin in glory. The down payment of the promised Holy Spirit to us means that we can walk as children of God in pleasing obedience to our heavenly Father with our elder brother Jesus leading the way. We can in the Spirit endeavor to be holy and blameless as God has predestined us to be now and we will most assuredly be holy and blameless before God our Father on that day when we will have perfect knowledge of Him who loved us even before the foundation of the world to the praise of His glorious grace. We have already been adopted into the family of God. But one day we will be united with all of our brothers and sisters in Christ around that family feast at the great wedding supper of the Lamb, where there we will will have no more division. We will have no more strife, but only fullness of joy in the presence of our God and Savior. And the Holy Spirit gives us a foretaste, a guarantee of that coming day Now, now, the church is to be marked by the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now. Our inheritance, beloved, is the end of our salvation, the glorification of our bodies. The final act of our union with Christ is to be like Him and with Him in glory. As sure as our bodies will lay in the grave if the Lord should tarry, 
we can be equally as sure that our bodies will be raised like His resurrection body. As sure as Christ reigns in victory now from His heavenly throne, so we will reign with Christ over a new heaven and a new earth. And just as sure as Jesus Christ has defeated sin, death, and hell for us, so there is coming a day when Satan, sin, and death shall be finally vanquished. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tragedy. There will be no more death. For the former things will have passed away. And the Lord Jesus will make all things new. Beloved, this is our sure and steady anchor when the tempest rages on. This is our inheritance in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the will of the Father, through the Holy Spirit, our redemption, our adoption, and our glorification with Christ. And so let me close this morning with this quote from John Stott. Thus everything we have and everything we are in Christ both comes from God and returns to God. It begins in His will. It ends with His glory. For this is where everything begins. And this is where everything shall end. Amen. Let's pray. O oh God, our Father, what great wonder we have in knowing that You have before the foundation of the world chose us in Christ to be redeemed, to be adopted, to be made holy, have a glorious inheritance. What great love and grace you have lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. What grace and mercy you have shown us by giving us a foretaste of all of the blessings you have for us in the Holy Spirit. Oh God, we pray that we would trust you that we would give ourselves to You and that we would be patiently awaiting that day when we will be in glory with the Lord Jesus and experience the fullness of all of our inheritance. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the Great Commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.